always got utter belief in it. And somehow she found the acceleration. Welcome to the Let's Run.com Track Talk podcast. We had an incredible nine days in Budapest for the World Championships, where Noah Lyles secured the triple, Faith Kip Yegon won the double, Shakari Richardson delivered, and Jakob Ingebrigtsen was once again defeated by an athlete from Edinburgh Athletic Club. A thing Mo did race and was handed her first 800 meter defeat as a professional but she still managed to win the only American medal in the distance or mid-distance events for the second championships in a row. We'll offer some final takes on Worlds before taking a look ahead to Thursday's Zurich Diamond League, where many of the big stars are immediately returning to action. Plus, the New York City Marathon fields are out. An already strong women's field got even better. We've got Yalmzorf Yahalor, former London Marathon champion. We've got Latessa Mbatgide, world record holder in the half marathon and the 10,000 meters. On the men's side, reigning champ Evans Jabet, two-time champ Jeffrey Camworo are back, and Edward Cheserek is stepping up to make his marathon debut. Gonna break down a bunch of stuff. Let's get, to, I mean, let's get to it, guys. We've got a lot of topics to go through. This is Jonathan Gold. I'm joined by my co-hosts, Robin and Weldon Johnson. All of us were in Budapest. None of us are in Budapest now. You guys are back stateside. I'm in Zurich. We got boots on the ground for the belt cluster. Looking forward to it. John, good to see your face again. It's been a few days. It's great to be in the Let's Run, back in the Let's Run.com Mid-Atlantic headquarters. Just pulled into the office about 15 minutes ago. Trying to figure out who had a better world, me or Noah Lyles. Top notch from both of us. For those of you that missed the pre-world show, I mean, the two big storylines for worlds from the men's side were the 1500 and the sprints. When Noah wins his gold medal in the 100, what's the first thing he does? He starts talking about me. So as a journalist, that's always a good thing. And But the 1500, those of you that missed last week's show, you missed this. Robin, two questions for you. So I'll start with the 1500 specifically. If someone beats him, who is it? Like Map out the scenario. If Ingebrigtsen loses in the 1500, how does it happen? Someone checked the voicemail. Has Josh Kerr come in? I, I went off on you on, on the Friday podcast. It's going to be Josh Kerr. I, I think the man most likely to beat him is Josh Kerr. Jo- Josh Kerr has been real. If only I'd put my bet down at 50 to want to be a rich man. But amazing worlds. I, I saw some comments from Sebco. He said the, the atmosphere in the stadium was amazing. Budapest was a really beautiful city. If you have a chance to take your kids somewhere, I highly recommend it. Seemed very safe, beautiful, historic. No, nothing to not like there. The track and field action was amazing. I'm not a big field event guy. Some of that was really dramatic. Just, I hope you guys had as much fun as I did over the last 10 days yeah. or so. Certainly. There were some events, the final round, where we had big comfort behind victories. I mean, the men's discus, we had Che take the lead, and then Stahl comes back and answers him with a monster throw. I mean, that was a lot of fun. Ulamar Rojas... Totally clutch, huge jump in the last round. Robert, I give you a lot of credit for that Josh Kerr prediction. I mean, I don't think you picked him in the contest, but in terms of you know saying who the upset bid is, I give you a lot of respect for that. That was a great call. I, I do have a question about the Let's Run.com prediction contest. For some reason, Wells has been over for two days and we still don't have an updated score. 
And it has Robert and Weldon are sitting number one and number two in the Heps group. I wonder if you guys are trying to stole the votes or pulling some is does there need to be some sort of rico investigation that you guys are charged in georgia with not letting the election you know not letting the results stand i don't know what you guys are doing here but the public we deserve a winner Uh oh john rojo's gonna go off on me because he's always big about keeping the contest scored but uh, that's a travesty of or just goes down to being up to four or five a.m every night for I was only there the last five days and getting sick and hopping on a plane. I will score the contest right now. It's in the base camp how to score the contest, I believe. Anyone could have done that. I probably knew I wasn't going to win, so I didn't think of doing it Sunday at 3 a.m. And no, we're not going to talk about the New York City Marathon today. There should be a moratorium. Around like 10 days of Worlds, you're only allowed to talk about Worlds. New York, wait, wait your turn, wait your turn. And we're not going to talk about the discus or something like that either today. No, no, no. We're talking about distant events. We want to talk about Noah Wiles, who he's talking to. Apparently, John had a was in the coffee line with Noah. Noah and him like shook hands and just said, hey, you know, John's like great worlds. And John, Noah's, well, you can tell us, John. What did he say to you? No, he was in line. I was second. I was right behind him. And he just looks back and he's like, oh, hey, what's up, man? Just sticks out his hand. Shakes it. Well, it was a very, it was like a 10 second interaction, but I'm just thinking, I'm like, Carrie Richardson was in front of the line at the coffee shop. I mean, I don't know how that would have gone, but I don't know. It's, I just don't think it's that hard. Noah, we say this a lot, but like Noah gets it. He kind of gets that we have a role to play as the media. We're not trying to antagonize them. We're just trying to cover the sport. And if you mess up, that gets covered. And if you run amazing, that gets covered too. And Mostly in his career, Noah Lyles has been amazing. So he gets a lot of pretty good coverage. But it is interesting this week, he's kind of gone mainstream. I don't usually see Stephen A. Smith laying takes off on Noah Lyles. That's a good thing for the sport, you know, uh, even if he's kind of disagreeing with what he had to say, that world champions comment. John, were people trying to get selfies with him in the line or he, leaving him alone? They were leaving him alone because it was a very short line and – I would estimate at that point, probably 75% of the people in the Budapest airport were either officials, athletes, media, something like that. So not quite as like mind-blowing to see him. You know who was getting some selfies in the airport was Alessandro Santos. Guy looks so cool. He's just had these cool sunglasses on walking around, goes in, buys some Swarovski crystals. He had girls lining up to take selfies with him. That was kind of fun. He's a cool dude, I think. Well, Noah Lyles at some level should be worried because is it true in the mix zone guys that he he came through and he said, Hey, to well, he thought Weldon was me. And he said, Hey, what are you predicting for me now? Cause I famously predicted he'll never win an Olympic gold, but he, my Josh Kerr prediction was correct. And now apparently all the NBA guys think that Noah Lyles' takes on sports are terrible. So which is more, which is a dumber take? My take that he's not going to win the Olympic gold or Noah Lyles. In case you missed it and aren't in America, it's all on TV here. Noah Wiles, after he won his gold, it's like, you know, the thing I hate is the NBA guys get to consider themselves world champions. World champions of what? And to me, that's a really stupid take. I think he probably did it on purpose to try to get to go mainstream. Like, of course, the best NBA basketball team is the best team in the world, and they are just as much the world champion, in my opinion, as Noah Lyles is. I mean, there's like 20 events in track and field, so – you know, did Noah Lyles beat every single person? No, he beat the best people in his event 
from the world. Like the NBA is the collection of the best athletes. They would crush every other league. And I just thought it was a ridiculous take, but I'm glad that it, it is, it, you know, I mean, I think it's cool that he's being talked about. I get what I he's going for though, Robert. Like, I think the better comparison would have been the NFL. Like I have no doubt the Kansas city chiefs are the best football team in the world, but only one country seriously plays American football. There are a couple in Europe and I know it doesn't say world champions on the hat, but people are like, oh, the world champion Kansas City Chiefs. It's easy to be the world champion whether you're, when you're the only country. Well, it's not easy. Sorry, it's not easy to win the Super Bowl. But when you win, when you're the only country that plays a sport and proclaiming yourself world champion, it's a little disingenuous. Whereas Noah's point is the entire world does track and field. And the 200 meters, there's a very low barrier to entry there. Who were the silver medalists and bronze medalists? Botswana and Great Britain. You know, you can run the 200 pretty much anywhere, and he was the fastest guy on earth. I think that's the point he's trying to make. Correct, and it's a good point. He should have made it against the Super Bowl, as you said. But also, the reality is, Noah, there's a lot of top sprinters, and they give up sprinting to go to the football because there's a lot more money. Tyreek Hill, I think I think he could have been a medalist at the global level. He's, it's not a sure thing. Do I think he's as fast as Noah Lyles? No but I don't think it's that far off. But I think you can say that about any major sport, almost. I mean, I think in Europe, almost everyone will start off playing soccer, so you usually will get the best athletes in soccer. But in the United States, I mean, a lot of people play football, but other people play basketball. Other people play baseball. You know, I think you can, that, you're going down a slippery slope at that point. But congrats to Noah, because on the podcast, we, we had the question, who is the most to gain? Who is the most to lose? We thought it was the same person. We thought it was Noah Lyles. If he somehow left Budapest without a gold, then it was all going to be on Arian Knightner or Tobogo for next year. And if he somehow won both golds, he's mainstream. He's going to be viewed as the next bolt, rightly or wrongly. I think it's a little bit wrongly, but he's getting the news in America. He's the double gold. He, he, he did fantastic. Now, he didn't come close to the times that he said he was going to run of 9.65 and 19.10. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting. If I told you before Worlds he's going to run 9.83 and 19.51, how many goals do you think he wins with those times? I mean, we've all seen it. The 100 hasn't been really that great this year. I wouldn't have been surprised to see 9.83 take the gold. And... 19 point, you ran 19.52 in the 200. How many other guys can do that? Have done that this year? One, Tobogo. And can he do it back to back? That was good. I would have th- said that's probably good enough for gold in the 200 and would certainly be on the podium in the 100. All right, guys. We've got intern Alex here. He was not at the Worlds, but I think sometimes it's best to get the impressions of Someone not quite as close to it. I mean, maybe now Alex is too close to it because he's helping us writing recaps and that sort of stuff, and he's a huge track and field fan. But Alex, what do you think of the world's big picture? I guess I, I kind of agree with Robert. The sprints and the 1500 were, I guess the sprints, the, the men's 1500 and the women's 800 were the best part of the show, best part of the event overall. Well, if we're talking sprints, let's talk Shakiri. I mean, magnificent in the 100. You know, this is a woman that has mesmerized America and perhaps the world for a number of years, had never competed on the global stage, 
has a terrible semifinal, running alone in lane nine, qualifies for time, you know, for the final on time. Now it was a little bit overstated how it's never been done before. I mean, Marcel Jacobs did it in the Olympics just two years ago, but comes through clutch and wins it, and just seems much more mature. I'm very, it's great to see just as a human being seeing her getting better, and performance wise, just letting her running do the talk, not acting crazy. Amazing run, and you know, there's a lot of post worlds articles, particularly they're, they're really only British, the only press that's legit anymore in terms of day-to-day newspaper coverage. Well, not totally true, but mainly comes from Britain or Ireland. Telegraph. Noah Lyles is the closest thing to a Sane Bolt successor. I don't agree with that. I I think it might be Shakari. Like, to me, the difference between Lyles and Shakari is it's natural for Shakari to me. Like, Shakari became a star without even trying to be a star. Noah, everyone is agreed on, on this podcast. Other people we've talked to, it's a little bit for us. He knows he's kind of playing. He he sort of it's like someone trying to play a role a little bit. But Shakari is just, you know, amazing. One other reason why I don't think Noah Lyles is Usain Bolt is let me tell you a story. First time I ever met Usain Bolt, it was was Beijing 28, 2008, John. Yeah. Summer of 2008. I'm in Beijing. Wasn't even covering the event for, for, for Let's Run. I was just there. My mom was a State Department employee. They're opening a new embassy. But Matt Taylor, who now owns Tracksmith, founder of Tracksmith, he worked for Puma at the time. He hung out with Bolt all the time. He had the, Puma had a party. Afterwards, we go into the back room. It's me, Usain Bolt, and Matt Taylor. What's Bolt asking me about? Hey, man, you're from the States? Do you know Kevin Garnett? It's like, uh, no. Why? Big fan. Love to meet him. And I was like, are you serious? Like, dude, like at this point, he's already the world record holder, but he wasn't world famous. I said, if you do at this meet, what I think you're going to do, you're going to be more, well, you're going to be way more famous worldwide than Kevin Garnett. He's like, really? I was like, yes. And I think I was proven right. I think he started doing Gatorade commercials with Kevin Garnett very soon thereafter. But no Lyles would have never disrespected those NBA guys. I mean, Usain Bolt would have never disrespected those NBA guys like Noah Lyles. That's for sure. So cool story there. Yeah, I, I do think he's Noah Lyles is in line for a big raise in profile, though. It, it honestly, what it kind of reminds me as of is what we saw with Tyson Gay. In 2007, remember, he comes in, he wins the 100, 200, and 4 by one at the Osaka Wells in 2007. And the next year, you know, everyone's kind of looking, all right, this is the guy in the 100 meters. He's America's hope. You know, he was viewed as the favorite coming into the year. And then all of a sudden, this guy called Bolt shows up and, you know, takes over the sport. Tyson Gay gets hurt at the U.S. trials. And... You know, eventually serves a doping ban. So his career didn't, you know, I don't think it went the way he wanted it to go, but he was in the same position Noah Lyles is now. And you know, you know, the NBC have already been trying to build a lot around Noah. They've got this Peacock documentary now. He'll do appearances at some NBC events. And he suddenly earned all that because look, he's the world, he's the triple world champion. He is going to be a big deal. If, you know, Sports Illustrated still did Olympic previews, he might be on the cover next year. Um, him and Shikari, that kind of, 
you know, would you say they're the faces of track and field in the United States? Or I think Noah's the face of male track and field. Shakari's probably the face of women's track and field, either her or Sydney McLaughlin Lavroni. But I'd say Shakari because Sydney really doesn't compete. I think we're going to get plenty of plenty of Sydney next year. I think she's going to go for the double. One thing that's interesting to hear is: Is there going to be any trouble in Coach Kersey's camp? Bobby Kersey, coach of Sydney McLaughlin Lavroni. Did not run at Worlds because she was injured. Coach of all things, Mo had never lost a race as a pro. She loses a race as a pro, gets bronze. And coach of Kenny Harrison, who did the exact opposite of what you wanted to do. 12-2 in the first round, 12-4 in the second round, 12-6 in the last round. Now, I saw someone criticizing Kersey for the strategy he gave Kenny of run 100% in all three rounds. I actually like that strategy. Like, get in the groove. And just run three 12 twos every time, and you're going to probably win. She just didn't do it. This woman's got a history of underperforming at major championships. I'm, I, you can't really blame Kersey for that too much. But it's interesting to me, you know, like on a team, you don't need that many disgruntled people, and then the momentum turns against you. So are any of these people going to start doubting, like, you know, maybe I shouldn't be coached? I'll think about particular. Maybe I shouldn't be coached by Bobby. I mean, if I could pull the clip and had time, but again, I've been flying and traveling. When it was the podcast, when we read the LA times article, that Bobby Kersey said, I think Mo could win the gold in the 1500. That weren't, that worried me greatly because I thought he doesn't understand the sport. She can't win a gold in the 1500. Now at some level, she's better at the 1500 meter than I ever thought she would be. But still that mindset at that time, I emphatically said, she's not going to win worlds this year. Now, again, I ended up changing my mind and predicting her in the prediction contest. She ran 402. She was so good, but she's not what she used to be. I'm kind of surprised with the 40. If you took a guy with 49 second speed and 402, 1500 meter endurance, they would run faster than 156. I'm kind of surprised she still didn't win, but it may be just that 800 is very race specific. You need a lot of reps at, the, at, the, at that pace, a lot of repetitions, and she didn't have it. No, so I'm, that'll I'm, be interesting to me. I mean, Bobby's one of the greatest coaches, but in history, but no. What do you think happens here? I think you need to back off on this take, Robert. Look, we, I've said at least, I don't mind the thing Mo racing and taking a loss. Everyone loses at some point. Was she going to? You expect her to just win every single race the rest of her life? Yeah, she's the defending champion. She's in her prime, but I think it's just she's up against two terrific athletes. Mary Mara is probably in 154 high shape right now. I don't really think there's any shame in losing. I don't think – I think there are other reasons that you could consider moving on from Kersey. But, I mean, it certainly seems like she's under a lot of stress and pressure. And I don't know if that's related to her moving across the country. Or, I mean, she said moving across the country has been a lot. But she hasn't off, vo- voiced any specific complaints about Kersey. So I kind of want to pump the brakes on that. But, no, I'm not going to – say, oh, she should have run a lot faster or she should have... I mean, the one thing I think she needs to stop doing is running in the outside of lane one. She allowed... That gave Keely Hodgkinson the room to come by her on the home straight. I just think that's a basic tactical error that needs to be corrected. But other than that, no, I mean, I I think she showed up. She gave it her best effort. She got beat, and that happens even to the great ones in our sport. You make some interesting points. Maybe Mary Marat is just a super, super talent who is on her game. 
Now, she's not as fast as I think Mo at 400. I mean, that, that part is clear. Despite She is the Kenyan record holder at 400, but she's not as fast as I think. But Mary Mara is the only person I've ever seen in a, in a modern-day 100 to go from first to last to first. So she is a monstrous talent. She's gotten the tactics down a little much better. She used to run tactical, you know, just had no idea what she was doing because why would you ever go from first to last to first? She's got I don't the know about down. that, Robert. The tactics well, in the World a- Championship final weren't all that great. She ran a ton of extra distance. If you're keying just off Mo, she didn't run that much compared to Mo, but compared to Hodgkinson, yes. Okay, I mean, it's just not horrible. That's an interesting point. But it was kind of interesting, you know, both races, men's women 800 and women's 800, were run by people who did not run what I thought were tactically great races. You and I had the same thing. I texted you about this, John. I don't know if we ever said it on Supporters Club podcast. By the way, if you're not a Supporters Club member, you missed out on a nightly podcast from Budapest. Let's run.com slash subscribe. You get 20% off shoes. It would have paid for itself if you signed up for a month. That's on you. Anyways, like I texted you right after the 800 final. Right when the gun goes off, I, I was had high hopes for Marco Arop. He looked so good in, in all the rounds. He'd gotten a medal last year. He goes out to last place, and I just thought, okay, running in last is a good way to medal. You can stay out of trouble for the first 500 and then just pick people off. But I go, it's hard to win. It's hard to pass everybody in 800. Boy, did I look like a fool. I mean, he made it look easy. Just He just ran a ton of extra ground, didn't care, and just still dominated everybody. Yeah, we talk about tactics, or at least I talk about tactics in the middle distance races, but the biggest advantage you can have over anyone is just being a lot fitter than they are. And Arop had that. I think Mary Marat had that. We thought Jakob had that, and turns out, one, the 1500 is harder to win from the front, and two, he says he wasn't 100%, so TBD on that one. But Faith Kipiegon... Yeah, I think someone on this podcast suggested, oh, her kick maybe isn't that and crazy good. No, she's like the, she might be the best kicker in 1500 history on the women's side. She closed in 56-6 to win this title. So she's just all around amazing. And that's why she's kind of immune to all these things. But back to our thing, Mo. I'm happy. Thank you, a thing, for running. Thank you for stopping to talk to the media after it was over. And thank you for losing. It, it's okay to lose. We need to teach people it's okay. Like it's not the end of the world. And I thought the world had the perfect ending. Like you could not have scripted a beginning where Femke Bull, you know, she's the anti Sydney McLaughlin in the sense of she loves to compete. She loves to race. She's always racing world indoors, relays. She'll run the, the mixed gender relay before her individual event and then come back. Whereas the American stars, it's, it's, they, they rarely race. And when they do race, they're certainly not running a mixed gender relay if they're a star. And then they're afraid to lose. She falls flat on her face and costs her team, not just the gold medal, all the medals, because she threw the baton across the lake. And then Alexis Holmes, the American unheralded, kicks down Femme Cabal. Amazing. Just amazing. Like unreal. Like never would have thought it. And then we end the meet on the exact opposite of that. Alexis Holmes somehow doesn't, she gets the baton too late in the four by four, which is almost impossible to do and gets us disqualified. So she goes from hero to goat, and then Femke goes from go to hero because she goes from third to first on the four by four after winning her individual gold. And it just was a wonderful, wonderful story for me. I think we should write a column on it, honestly. Like, it's okay to compete. Sometimes you win, sometimes you lose. 
You've got a gift. Use it. Enjoy it. Have fun. If you win every time, it's honestly not that much fun. It does just build pressure. It's okay to lose, Sydney. Should have shown up, done what a thing did, got beaten. But I think Sydney's going to go for the double next year. Yes or no? Do you, John? I mean, before this year, I would have said yes, but I honestly don't know. I don't know what goes on in her head. She didn't get the chance to run the 400 at Worlds this year, so who knows? She's going to do what she wants to do, and I don't know what that is. So actually, that's not even true. She's going to do what Bobby Kersey tells her to do, and I don't know what that is right now. Well, John giving one of the biggest stars in the sport, no agency. I view the Sydney a thing mo situation a little bit differently now. Sydney did have some sort of injury, right? She missed Monaco, whatever. She doesn't get 100% benefit of the doubt because she never races to begin with. So somewhat of a pass there. A thing, Mo, it's pretty clear now, people are saying this in the message boards, that she's no longer, that her relationship with her boyfriend, Brandon Miller, has ended. They're, they've sort of scrubbed each other from social media accounts. So you're a 21-year-old kid. You move out to L.A. You've gone from New Jersey to College Station to L.A. in the span of, what, three years? When you go to L.A., it's all new. You have some family out there, but also like your boyfriend is a big part. He turns pro as well. When that relationship ends, I'm sorry, it's going to be very difficult. I think she's been going through this behind the scenes. She's free to handle it privately, but I think that that obviously played in her decision. She's like, there's other stuff going on. I think that's probably what one of the things at least going on. So we can say, oh, it's easy to show up at Worlds and do whatever. She showed up at Worlds and, and did whatever. So I'm really glad she showed up. You know, afterwards, she talked like 10, 11 minutes to us. You should check out our YouTube videos for that. Like, she was great. She, she's great when she talks to the media. I was glad she gave us the time. And the Women's 800, it's going to be a must-watch at the Olympics next year, once again. So it's even more interesting, right? I mean, now Mary Morris, 100% in the mix, because John speculated that run might have been worth a 154 if she didn't run all the extra distance. That's a great point. I hadn't heard about that stuff about Brandon Miller, but I don't know her past relationship history. But I think most people will tell you, the first time you get your heart broken, it's really tough. So glad you showed up. Free relationship advice from Rojo here. Once read this from someone else. I didn't invent this, but... All relationships in either breakup, divorce, or death. Enjoy uh, it while you got it. Rojo getting a little morbidly profound there. Uh, by the way, Weldon, you said that Sydney McLaughlin wasn't giving her agency. No, I'm just listening to what she says. She always says, we're just going to do what Bobby wants to do. So I'm listening to her comments. That's what she said about pretty much every decision she's made the last couple of years. Re a thing. I love that she ran this race. She was responsible for two of the most exciting moments of the 2023 track and field season. That was the women's 800 final, which we, she was a major part of at worlds and the women's 1500 final at USA's where for most of the race, I was thinking, Holy shit, is she going to win this thing? So she's amazing to watch when she competes. She's a good interview. Um, she's what the sport needs. It's just, she doesn't always need the sport. So I hope she goes on a nice long vacation. She forgets about track for a while. And then she comes back November, whenever she resumes training, 
and she's motivated to go for that Olympics and to get back her gold medal because she's she's great for the sport when she's competing. All right, guys. Normally when we start these podcasts and we complain, we've only talked about Jakob Ingerbidsen for 45 minutes. Let's talk about something else. We owe, we owe an apology to our people. It's been on for almost 30 minutes and barely mentioned his name. Well, I did lead with it, but I've been thinking a little bit about why I thought Kerr, John, as compared to Jared Nagus, why that name jumped out at me as the person most likely to beat Jakob Ingebrigtsen. And I think it was because we'd seen what Jared could do all season. We'd seen peak Jared from the beginning of the season to the end of the season. And like, why would I think that he would take a step up and suddenly beat Jakob? But with Kerr, we hadn't really seen him that much. He'd run a couple big races, but not as many as he did the year before. But he'd run the 330, then the 329. He'd been holed up for six or seven weeks in terms of the 1500. And I thought, what if we, you know, if he's ready to run 328, that may be hard to beat. And I got a fascinating text from a supporters club member, former Cornell track and field middle distance runner, Ross McGowan. After the 1500 concluded, he said, Jakob owes you an apology because I had been saying oh, Jakob was vulnerable, extremely vulnerable in the 1500 due to his lack of great speed, but unbeatable in the 5000. That proved, that proved correct. But he says, it turns out in retrospect that the most important race at Milrose indoors this year for the world 1500 meter title wasn't Yard Nagoose nearly breaking the mile world record to great fanfare, but it was Josh Kerr showing his improved strength by killing Luis Grijalva in the 3K. It's really true. Like, I remember we were talking about that race. It was about the mile, and then the goose went bonkers, and we were just like, oh, my God, he's so amazing. And I had totally discounted Josh Kerr's chances in that race in the 3,000. I was like, why is he even running the 3,000? His endurance isn't good. And then he crushed the guy who was fourth at Worlds in the 5,000, both last year and this year. So Josh just got a lot better, really brought it on the first race. And I want to see what happens from here. There's been some big comments. I don't know if we've talked much about this. Like after the 5,000, Jakob basically dissed Kerr like he dissed Whiteman in the sense of he said, you know, if I wasn't in the race, he probably would have won, but he's just another guy. Do we think Josh Kerr is just another guy? He's not, he said he's just the next guy. You know, because Jakob always thinks in every race that he's the best guy in the field. And I do think that comment is disrespectful because, one, Jakob was in the race. And it's not like Jakob was totally derailed by this illness. He still finished second. He still ran 329. I tend to believe it did have an effect on him. And I'd be curious to hear in a minute what you, whether you guys think if he was 100%, would he have won this race? But it is disrespectful. I mean, he's the—he's not just the next guy. He's the world champion. Uh, he showed up. He got it right. And, you know, the, we have this agreement in track and field. Hey, everyone's going to meet. We're going to run one race on this day, and that's going to be the world champion. And I think if I had them in a Diamond League race, I would take Jakob. And maybe even next year at the Worlds, like, well, sorry, the Olympics, I might take Jakob. But... I do think it's disrespectful just guy refer to a guy who took down the whole world and calling him just the next guy. John, I think you misunderstand the statement about his, if I was in the race. Of course he was in the race. He's just saying, like, I set up a race a certain way so they can just key off me. Would he have won if it was just everybody else in the race not 
king off me. He's, so he's giving Kerr some credit there by saying he probably would have won. He's saying he's better than everybody else. But Oh, oh okay. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I, I saw something in the British press like, Jakob's not keen for a rematch. I tell you what, I'm damn keen for a rematch, and I want to see it. But there's a few tweaks that we've got to change in this world. And some of this, one of this, I mean, I, I keep saying I'm going to write the articles, how to change the Diamond League schedule. On the off year, the Diamond League should be the world's. We have the world championship for the high jump in, in Qatar, and we have the 1500 we have it in Monaco, and we have the other Diamond Leagues as the qualifying races. And no, second changes, NBC should never broadcast on a three-second delay. With a play-by-play guys doing a broadcast on a three-second delay, it was terrible. Embarrassment for NBC, shame on you. But I'm looking at the, I just looking at the Diamond League 1,500-meter standings. I'm like, well, Josh Kerr hasn't been placing very high in these races. He's not going to be in the Diamond League final. Igan Brinson will be there. Kerr will be sitting on his couch. And sure enough, like Kerr's not in the top eight. He doesn't get any points for Worlds. They should at least count the Worlds as a Diamond League. Like, give me a break. Count is the same as one Diamond League. Robert, I've been thinking about this same issue. Uh, I have an even simpler solution. The world champion just gets an automatic entry into the Diamond League final. Is anyone complaining about that? I don't think so. So, and I did look at the math. They take 10 to the Diamond League final. Josh Kerr is one point out of 10th right now. If he's in the top four or even five, maybe even six in Zurich, which Jakob is not running, I think Kerr will qualify for the final. So I think we do have a pretty good shot at getting a rematch in Eugene. But I agree. It's a very easy fix. Just let the world champion have a buy into the Diamond League final every year. And then do we have rabbits in the final? We do. We shouldn't. Not in that race. I was thinking about this. What if we had like drew out of a hat at the start line of of a – maybe try it in a diamond league and see if it's fun or even a world's like i've said this before if you're going to get rid of the ten thousand, you could just say you could draw out a hat it's either going to be a five thousand or a ten thousand we find out now it's either going to be rabbited or unrabbited we find out now now middle you'd have to have the rabbits ready to go i guess you could have machine rabbit it but put some you know like i I said this about the marathons i would we have the up and down champions of the comrades ultra marathon i would love to some improve I win New York with the Rabbits. I win New York without the Rabbits. I win Worlds with the Rabbits. I win Worlds without the Rabbits. No, not never Rabbits at Worlds. Never. But I don't mind having them in Diamond League because if you're crowning the champion of the Diamond League, we have Rabbits in the regular Diamond League meets. So it's not a big deal to me that that's... We have a championship without pacemakers. It's the what everyone cares about. And I'm fine with that. We don't need to add like... It doesn't need to do it. All right. I do have a question for you too, though. Jakob said, I think he estimated he was around 88% for the 1500 meter final. We did discuss this a little bit on our nightly show, but one, are you buying that he was under the weather? And two, if you th- if he was 100%, does he win that race? I am buying he's under the weather. I talked to web guy Eric, whose wife is a medical professional. He said, well, Jakob was under the weather, so it's been confirmed. <laughs> Would he have won the race if he wasn't under the weather? That's the damn big question, man, because we thought he could lose this race anyway. That's why we love the 1500. It's why it's the best event, because it's it's so differently in the non-rabbited races. And I agree 100%. Diamond League Finals should not have rabbits. Maybe the 5K, you want to have them because the time matters. But 15, unless it's going to roll out for like a, some sort of record, no. 
you're just going to wrap it so you can have like a 330 race, forget about it. They want to really go for something big, fine. But otherwise, just say, hey, race. We want to see what happens. And that would actually help you. The other guy should actually pray for a rabbit. The less experience Jakob has in a rabbit, the better chances they have in Paris. I'll say that much. This guy, he never gets the experience of racing without rabbits, except the championships when he seems to lose about, what, two-thirds of the time now? Well, he gets the experience at the European championships and stuff like that, but he that's not the same type of competition. Yeah, that's like, you know, racing a bunch of high school kids or something. Okay, okay, hold on. Where is the reigning world champion from? Where is Were they racing Jakob at the European Championships? I didn't remember in the 1500. Where's last year's world champion from? All three podium finishes last year. I mean, not all of them show up to run every Euros every year, but Europe's where the best milers are right now. Um, I do want to answer my own question that I posed to you. I don't think Jakob was 100%. I think he wins worlds if there's one specific scenario, right? If he runs the exact same race he did, in Budapest, and he's just relying on holding off Kerr at the end. I actually don't think he does that even at 100%, even though he's gotten better at closing races this year. I think the big mistake he made was the second lap. He ran it in 58 seconds. That's not fast enough for Jakob for the strategy he's trying to employ. If that's the reason he ran it slower is because he felt he wasn't 100%, he couldn't run like a 56, then yes, he wins the race if he's 100%. But if he was like, no, I'm just going to make it into a 329 race and it's not a big deal if I run a 58 instead of a 56 or a 57, I disagree with that. I think if it's a 327 or a 328 race, Jakob wins because he drops everyone. If it's a 329 race, we've seen other guys run 329 and we did in Budapest. I mean, Kerr's PB is 329.05. The winning time is 329.38. Yeah. That's an interesting take, John. Do I think he was sick? I'm like, but he still beat all the other guys. But yeah, he's like a second and a half off what he normally runs. They run what they normally run. Although Yard Nagus didn't run what he normally runs either. Look, yeah, I, I, I guess I'm going to believe that he's sick. But I mean, I was wondering if Noah Lyles was really sick at USA's. And he guess what? He was because he won the Worlds in the 100. So I'm going to say sick. Was he 88%? No, that's a dumb figure. Just from a mathematical standpoint, he wasn't, you know, 20 seconds off what he was capable of. He's like 98. You're still like... 99% of what you are. You don't feel nearly the same. You don't feel nearly as good. But yeah, he needed to be a 328 race. Like <laughs> The fascinating thing was his last lap in this race was faster than his last laps in any of the Diamond League races. We, we, we had the analysis on the other show the other day. So it wasn't like he ran terrible. But, you know, Norv Nordas is not normally 0.02 or 0.03 behind him. So in the 5,000, I got back to... My vacation rental with my college buddy running with the Buffaloes out there, Tim or Chris Lear. There was like, we realized it was going on. We tried to like, I love how John thinks that every podcast listener is watching every race live. No, you're not. Not with the family. I, I looked at my phone. It was like live timing. It was like five minutes in. I'm like, we tried to figure out how to get the damn streaming up. And then we basically watched the last mile. But I was just kind of assuming, like, okay, Ingebrigtsen's just got these guys. He's just timing it perfectly, just waiting to outkick them. And even with, like, 100 meters to go, like, he looked up at the scoreboard to see if anyone was, you know, to, to, to do it. But then I'm like, man, how late is he waiting? And I got a little bit nervous there with, like, 20 meters to go. But 
now that he's won, you know, he's like, I had to, I didn't feel good. I had to do a perfect race. I, I wanted to make no mistakes. Leave it to the very, very end, you know, but I got a text from someone's like, um, buddy of mine, he's not, he's not a track and field fan. He's played college soccer. He's like, I've watched the Norwegian guy. He won the one silver medal, one gold medal, and acted like he had the worst world championship ever. And I'm like, that's because the 1500s is baby. And it's just amazing to the expectations that he holds himself to. One gold and one silver, and he's like despondent about it. But it's 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 just going to be amazing for the next year because we're going to wonder, and it's going to be exciting. Is he going to be vulnerable again? And I, we all have agreed now, no matter what happens between now and next year's Olympic 1500-meter final, he, he's still vulnerable. And he won't be vulnerable unless he crosses the finish line first in Paris. But he he conquered a great group of 5,000-meter runners. It's just the same. We're in the same point as last year. Like He seems vulnerable in the 1500, but almost unbeatable in the 5,000. And it's kind of reminding me why Mo Farah was so good. We viewed Mo Farah as the best distance runner, but he was the best championship distance runner. He didn't do a lot of diamond league circuits. He didn't run a lot of fast times, but he had 328, 1500-meter speed, and he was good enough not to get dropped in the 5 and the 10 and beat everybody. And as I was driving into the office tonight, tonight, this afternoon, I was talking to John Kellogg, and he's like, we're talking about Savannah Sawn and her triple and everything. I said, how does she get second in the silver medal in the 1500 after running London and winning it? He's like, you know what? But when I used to run, I used to think like, why doesn't the 1500 meter champion, if they train properly and train like they should as a distance runner and for the 1500, John is often critical of a lot of 1500 meter training. Why wouldn't they also be the best person at the 5,000 and 10,000? And we're kind of starting to see that. I would love to see Ingen Britson move up to the 10,000. I mean, I want him to stay in the 1500 because that's a challenge. But before it's done, I'm dead serious. I want him to go for the quadruple. 15, steeple, 5, and 10. Well, you need to be a specific kind of athlete. Josh Josh Kerr has some endurance, but he's not a future 5K 10K world champ. Jake Whiteman's an 815 guy. I mean, is he applying this across the board or just say for someone like Jakob, if you're an endurance-based 15 guy, yeah, you do have a pretty good chance of moving up. We saw it with Hikam El-Garouge. We saw it with Bernard Lagat. They were global champions in the 5K as well. But you need to be that kind of runner. Kiprop kept saying he would do that. Kiprop never did because he didn't have the endurance. If, if Kiprop hadn't been lazy, he might have had the endurance. He was a former world junior cross-country runner. Robert's favorite country. accolade. But that, that I, I do kind of agree with that, yeah. But like the 1500 is almost not fair for the endurance-based guys. But the 5,000 is almost unfair for the for the endurance-based guys. Like, is there anything these endurance-based guys can do in the 5,000? Like, other than just – other than literally the top six of them get in a room the night before the race and sign a legally binding contract and draw out of a hat saying, I will take the first that 1,000 meters fast or I will pay you my salary for the next three years. Because we see it. It's hot. Everyone knows that if they push the pace, they're going to sacrifice their own race. But if you don't push the pace, you're going to lose to the 1,500-meter guys. Yeah, you, you essentially need to be a, like, once-in-a-generation type endurance talent to win the 5K or 10K that way. The last time we saw it on the men's side, Pekele, 2008 Beijing, I would say. He won that race by five seconds in the 5K. He, I mean, he could outkick everyone as well. 2008 Pekele was just a, a god, but... 
he just utterly destroyed everyone because he was stronger than everyone and broke a really great field. But most of the time in these events, it comes down to the last lap. Like to be a championship 5K or 10K runner, you need to have amazing speed. That's just how it is. On the women's side, sometimes we, we will see like Almazayana back in the day, she was able to just drop people with these big mid-race surges, but it's pretty rare on the men's side. Okay, didn't we just see Aragawe like lead the vast majority of 5K and run like 12.41 or 12.42 and win it? Beat Cheptegei or something Lee, like that? Diamond perfect conditions. And making something up? I mean, he, yeah, we're saying what makes you a great Diamond League runner doesn't always translate. To, I know he re- led like the last 3K, but it wasn't in a championship final and it wasn't in hot weather. And it wasn't okay. against Jakob. You don't think Jakob could have hung on to 12.40 low pace? I do. I'm still not convinced. He's never done it, so how do we know? But He's run 12.48 two years ago, and he's better now. So Mo Farah could do it? Oh, yeah. Why didn't Why he? didn't Mo Farah get the world okay. record? Thank Mo you, Farah Robert. didn't have some... If Mo Farah had Berahu Aragawi towing him along to a 12.40, he would have run that, probably. Oh. Or at least I know I'm very confident Jakob would have. Mo, Mo ran, what, 12.53? So, okay, maybe I'm going to roll that back. But with super shoes, maybe he does it. I'm just saying, you're saying, oh, Aragawi's so he's so much stronger than Jakob, he'll be able to drop him. I haven't seen that. I haven't seen Jakob be towed along by a guy pacing him for 4,500 meters. Okay. A couple things. One, the Ethiopian men were some of my biggest losers at this meet. The 5K runners, I was shocked. As fast as those guys are running, not one got a medal in the 5K. Now... Maybe when you think about it, the two 1500 guys are going to take two of the three medals, but I'm piss poor for them. They should have had better strategy. And, but if you listen to our daily podcast from Worlds, thank you, supporters, club members. Thank you for all the new members who signed up. Really appreciate it. You know, we said, Jakob, are you surprised they didn't push the pace? And he said, mm, kind of, but not really. It's hard to do, as John said, it's hot. And, John, I'm looking here at the 2022 European Championships. There's not a single guy who could have beaten Jakob in that race. Jake Hayward and Mario Garcia were your second and third place. He also completed the double back in 2018 when he was 17 years old. And the crazy thing is, Jakob is only 22. We, skip, we, we give a thing a pass. She's only 21. Jakob's a year older. He's like a year and a half older. He's still only 22 years old. This guy's been just taking names at the European level since he was 17 international level since like depends on where you want to count starting, but he's still very young. And speaking of being very young intern, Alex is the only one very young in this podcast. I don't think the Ethiopian 5k men were my biggest losers. Who were your biggest losers at the meet Alex? Or is this unfair pressure to make the young kid go negative first? I mean, we, you know, setting him up for failure. And people, you know, a lot of so-called track media doesn't like anything negative. So this could be disaster for Alex's future prospects in the sport. I don't know who my biggest losers are, but just going back to Robert's comment earlier for one second, I think you're, you probably are going to, I don't know about the quadruple, but I think you are going to see Jakob do the triple. I mean, I think for the first time ever, at least... To my knowledge, he admitted that the 5K was his better event post, um, in his post race interview. And he said, like, since he has such a good aerobic base and aerobic engine, the longer the event is, the better it is for him. 
So I just assumed that he would naturally move to the 10K eventually while also trying to do the 15. I don't know how long he's going to do the 15. Well, I think he wants to run the 15 as long as he's able. He said last year, I think, he wanted to do the 15, 5K, 10K uh, Wells last year, and he had the... He was supposed to run a 10K, and I think he got COVID or something, couldn't do it, and ended up backing off. But he he has the most fun in the 1500, but I do think in years past, he's I think he said last year the 5K, he's probably that's his superior event. But anyway, sorry, I interrupted that. You, ha- you have a biggest loser for us, Alex. Because this is just my personal perspective, and I'm just, it's just one athlete. But it was kind of how it was kind of multifaceted, not just how she performed on the track, but also off the track. Toby Amason is probably my biggest loser. Um, she's the world record holder, defending world champion. Has this whole whereabouts thing clouding over her career now. But not only does she not get a medal at all in the women's 100-meter hurdles, she, in my opinion, was just disrespectful towards the media as a whole. Uh-oh. I put that clip on social media. Alex will be blasted. Friend of Latron Cajal Dennehy asked Toby about the whereabouts. She's like, I've answered, you've answered that, asked that question multiple times, which he had not asked multiple times. Maybe someone previously had, but not there in front of us. Or I wasn't there, but in front of the journalists gathered. People on social media went after him. And Alex, that's a good point. I agree with you. Like, so even after the finals, she was asked, she found, someone said, tell us about your fitness, you know, all you're going through. And she said, oh, I finally can talk about that. And to John and I, that meant she, she can talk about the whereabouts. So that John asked about the whereabouts again. And she, since she shut the conversation down. But I, I was like, look, I was giving her the opportunity. She was cleared. Yet her reputation is ruined with a lot of people. Because of what the AIU charging her. Now, if she's innocent and nothing happened, she should try to get every damn detail out there in my book and blast them. And I, I don't know if you know there can be financial repercussions, but the AIU handles ath- holds athletes to the highest standard. You have some trace amount of some substance in your body, you're banned. It's your responsibility to figure out why. So... When they charge people, they need to be certain they're going to convict them. So the AIU in the middle of the week said, Robert and John, you were there. I was maybe on a plane. Said, we're coming out tomorrow with the details of this case once we black out, once we remove some personal information. We're now four or five days later, six days later. That has not been released. There's been no statement by the AIU. To me, that's 100% unacceptable. They need to be held accountable. They can't say something and not do it, or they need to issue a statement. And yeah, I wasn't the only one thinking that. But should we keep going? Guys, who was the world's lost opportunity, your biggest losers, however you want to phrase it? Yeah, let's keep going. We could do a whole podcast, and we probably will do a whole podcast about what went on in the mix zone in Budapest because it's unlike anything I've ever seen in a track meet and the dichotomy between what you, Alex and myself and probably most people would consider to be a journalist and what 
other people think should be journalism. And I should really just read this whole Cathal Dennehy piece from the Irish Times. We'll link to it in the show notes. You have to be a subscriber. We'll read from it in another show. But it, it's really interesting because back during the Lance Armstrong era, um, the famous writer David Walsh, who Lance Armstrong sued, won a million, multi-million dollar suit temporarily for defamation. But obviously David Walsh was right about what he was writing. David Walsh referred to the reporters then as fans with typewriters. And Cathal writes, the fans with typewriters that David Walsh alluded to during Lance Armstrong era now, by and large, are fans with smartphones, showering athletes with love when they step off the track, any, avoiding any questions that might hurt them. Because after me and Cathal tried to get Toby to answer these questions, she got irate. She said, are you one of them? I said, I'm just saying, some fans think you're guilty. She went over to the Nigerian press and they were calling, oh, our princess, here you are. Like, the day I call someone a princess is the day I stop being an objective reporter. Biggest loser to me. I mean, it's who, who who's always the biggest losers at these meets? We want an American, excuse me, we want a Canadian-born American to win a distance medal. We always grow up. Someone that's the American star, raised here, getting a, a medal, Grant Fisher. And he never gets a medal. This time he didn't even compete at Worlds. But back when he was fifth in the Olympics, I said, the problem is, look who was fourth, Barahu Aragawe. He's younger than Grant Fisher. He, he's faster than Grant Fisher. He's still younger and faster than Grant Fisher. But yet again, Barahu Aragawe doesn't get a medal. I mean, Yomif Kovjelcha, who is probably also younger than Grant Fisher, He's only got one medal to his career. It's extremely hard. Like Walden's ripping the Ethiopian men, but it's just, there's so many good guys. These are the people that didn't medal. Kajelcha, Gebrehiwat, Ahmed, Aragawe. I guess we should put Grialva in there, but that's not even with, and guess what? Two guys that probably would have medaled skipped out on the event. Joshua Cheptegei and Jacob Caplimo. I don't think they're going to skip out on the Olympics. Caplimo might. Well, they didn't skip out. I mean, Cheptegei had a said he had a foot injury. Now, we, I guess we can debate how serious that is. He did win the 10K, but Kiplimo legitimately injured. He didn't run any events here. That is par for the course, Robert. This happens. Grant Fisher, I've said, I think if he was healthy and in every championship from you know 21 through 25, he does get a medal. The problem is health is an issue. So you're saying, oh, Cheptegei and Kiplimo, they're going to be in the Olympics next year, we think. But there might be someone else. Maybe Borrega's hurt. Maybe Ingebrigtsen gets hurt for the first time in his life. Like, someone's always going to be missing due to injury. That happens pretty much every year. That's why I think if Grant Fisher keeps showing up, he could get a medal. Because look at how he performed both in Eugene and Tokyo compared to all the other American distance runners in those long-distance events. I mean, none of them were close uh, in Budapest. Chalimo getting older, he had an awful race. Abdi Noor wasn't close. Kincaid, Klecker, McGordy, none of them close to the podium. Grant Fisher was very close to the podium in two races last year. So he's the only, you know, I think when he's healthy, he's still got the best shot of an American to medal, but he hasn't been healthy this year. A few more distance points I want to make about these North American, you know, people that came through the collegiate system. One, Woody Kincaid. I know he wants to make sure he gets on the Olympic team. And it's kind of hard to do both. Well, the, the good thing at the U.S. trials is there's a the Olympic trials there's a week long gap versus like a three day gap. He needs to give up on the 10K. 
he's not competitive in that event in the world stage. He may have a better shot of making the team. It's easier to make, I guess, than the five because his kick's so good. No one's going to drop him. But for the world stage, he needs to make damn sure he's in the 5,000 because I don't know. Like he, Grialva, who's fourth, and, and Nur are all training partners. Nur's fourth again. Now, it's interesting about Nura. My comment on Grialva. him was, excuse me, Grialva finishes fourth last year's Worlds and this year's Worlds. And amazing job. He's defying what we thought a distance runner from Central America could do. I mean, right? It shows you there's just a lot of untapped talent in countries where there's they don't have the conditions, the coaching, the economic place to train. There's a lot of people. There must be in Central America that could be good distance runners. Untapped. But... That's the positive. The negative, I gotta, I gotta give a ding. For someone who's finished fourth and he was only 0.22 away from a medal, I've never seen someone finish fourth at two worlds and be that far away from meddling. Like he's not close to meddling, even with 200 meters to go. And then he kicks down a ton of guys. So last year he went from like 10th to fourth. This year maybe he went from like eighth to fourth. But I guess one more person doesn't show up. He is at a medal. But afterwards he said, I was listening to y'all's YouTube stuff. He's like, I know I'm just, I'm a much better runner. It's just totally changed from last year. I'm like, do we really know that? He was fourth last year. He's fourth this year. What's I mean, he's, he's faster in his PBs. But do you guys think he's much better? Yes, I, I do. He ran 12.52 this year. He just – the big thing was that move happened at the bell, and he should have been expected some, and he didn't respond to it the best. He, he was in good position for almost the entire race, and he got shuffled back, and then he had to kick and come from behind. If he – Look, it's hard to stay up at the front because everyone's kicking at the same time. But if he defends his position, he might end up as a medalist. He just had too much ground to make up the last hundred. Robert, I also wanted to go back when we're talking about. I mean, I don't view that as a, Luis viewed it as a big disappointment. I still think fourth in the world against the people he's at, it's it's very hard to do. He beat Kajelcha, Gebrewet, Mohamed, Berahu, Aragawi. Like he beat some very good guys in this race. But Co- correct. Do you think Luis Gravel dies with a medal around his neck? I mean, he's won a medal. I do not. But his kick is so sick. Maybe I should I should doubt that. But, I mean, there's a lot better college runners that have never medaled than him. I don't care what you did in college anymore. I think Luis Gravel is just as good as Grant Fisher these days. Maybe better. So, not in the 10K, but he's shown it in the 5K. The last two worlds, he's run 12.52. What, Grant's run 12.46? I'm supposed to think he's much better? I don't buy it. Luis is one of the most impressive athletes in my book. Uh, fourth placer sometimes, you know, like, which fourth placer is, you know, the biggest disappointment? Which one's the most happy? I think he's pretty happy. I mean, he's not happy, but for me, I'm well, he impressed was lost with the performance. Yet. Last year, he was really happy. This year, he's disappointed. For me, both years, I'm like, wow, that's impressive. Luis, keep it going. This year validated. Last year wasn't a fluke. I don't know. Sierra McGeehan. Hopefully I'm saying her name right. I think, I think her fourth place was pretty Kira. good. You know, but then there's other athletes. Kira McGeehan. I mean, I don't know. I want to go biggest losers. I mean, can I say an athlete who's happy with his performance? It's not the biggest loser, but Yard and a goose, man. I think we all expected a medal. Anything less than a medal would be a disappointment. So biggest loser is maybe unfair to say fifth place, but it was a hugely missed opportunity. Similarly, Nikki Hiltz. I would have expected Nikki to make the final, 
But then again, Nikki Simi had the top three medalists all in it. So harder to make that final. But Nikki was, I think, last in, her, in their semi. She goes by the they pronouns. So not a good run then, as well as Nikki's been running this year. Yeah, Nagu's definitely a missed opportunity. Um, fifth in his first global final. I mean, it's nothing to be like, it's not like, oh, he totally choked or anything, but he'd been top three in all the Diamond Leagues this year. This was the kind of race that I thought suited his skill set fine. Not getting a medal. Yeah, I think we expected him to medal. A couple other people. Someone has in the Google Doc here, Fred Curley, defending champion in the 100, didn't even make the final. That's certainly a disappointment, especially because he was talking big ahead of the meet against Noah Lyles. I don't know what happened. Fred does, didn't seem to know what happened. He'd won a bunch of Diamond Leagues earlier this year. I know he got beat in Silesia, but he's a championship performer. Silver and gold, the last two global champs, and not even in the final. I, I don't know what happened there. Then another guy, potentially one of the coolest stories of the meet, if he had come back and won, Wade Van Niekirk, you know, the world record holder in the men's 400 meters, two-time world champion, Olympic champion, Blew out his knee in 2017. Long road back to the top. He was fifth last year. When what happens in this meet? His biggest rival, Stephen Gardner, falls down, which he seems to do a lot, uh, in the prelims of the 400 meters, and he's out. So that leaves Van Niekirk as the favorite, the way he'd been running this year. He'd won every race he'd run this year to entering Worlds, including three Diamond Leagues, 44.08 and Chorzel. The winning time is not very fast. 44.22, that's pretty slow for a world champion in the 400 meters. Wade Van Niekirk ran 44.17, his first race of 2023 at the South African Championships on April 1st, first final of 2023. So this gold medal was here for the taking. I don't know if it was because it was a long season. I mean, running... We've seen this before. Remember Michael Norman ran 43-4 in April in 2019. Was cooked by the end of the season. Maybe that's the case with Van Niekirk as well. I don't know. He's won three global titles, so I think they know how to do it. But it was a big missed opportunity for him to only finish seventh in the final in 45-11. His worst race of the season. That's definitely a disappointment. I apologize to Nicky. Fred Curley's a much bigger loser than Nicky. <laughs> To me, though, Fred Curley should have been in the final. I really like the no-time qualifiers and the distances. They need to extend that all the way down. Every event, no-time qualifiers, and you need to go to the top three in each semi, and the sprints makes the final. You've got a nine-lane track for a reason. Use all damn nine lanes. Curley would have been in there. It would have been great to have him. He's super strong. Maybe he medals, maybe he doesn't, but wouldn't you want him in there? People go, what if there's a tie? If there's a tie, you flip a coin, you have a match race, whatever you want to do, but we should plan on having nine. Deal with the ties later. Top three in the semis go in. Same thing with the 800s. Top three in the semis. If you have a tie, you have them share lane in the 800. It's not a big deal. But that would be a lot. It's, there were some good changes with in terms of the presentation of this meet. With that stuff, the time qualifiers was great. There's a few things, negatives, we can talk about on another show. The timing is terrible. It, it takes them hours to get the results up. It's ridiculous. But I really like the no time qualifiers. We should do that. U.S. Distance did not have a great meet. I think we would have said the over-under was one and a half medals. Is that what we said in the, coming into the show? We expected one in the 800, women's 800. We thought we'd get one in the men's 1500. Did we expect anything else? 
I put it one and a half excluding Mo because I thought Nagus had a very good shot in the 1500 and then maybe you get someone in the marathon. Maybe you get one in the 5K. Chalimo's medal before. Nor had a decent, had a shot. Um, yeah, I put it at that. But no, second year in a row, I think Mo is the only mid-distance distance medalist uh, for the United States. We have seen these things change quickly. 2015, the U.S. only had one medalist. Emily Infeld in the 10K. The next year in Rio, they had seven. So that was an exceptionally good meet for them. And get, get, you get a help from Fisher back. Maybe they get, you know, that, that gives you a better shot in some of those longer distance races. Nagus is still going to be around. Cole Hawker, give him a whole year. I mean, they have people who could win medals, but we've said this before, it is very hard to do it, especially someone, event like the men's and women's 1500. The women's 1500s as stacked as it ever has been. The men's 1500s probably as deep as it ever has been. It's, it's tough to crack these fields. It sure is. Hey, biggest loser. And I like to say stuff, bring this up just because I know the shoe designer listens to the podcast, Jordan Donnelly. Should we say objective journalism or the headline writer for the New York Times? Remember the feature? They jinxed him. Came out just before Worlds. New York Times feature story. The most impressive world championship team is in the country. It's a brand. The OAC, the OAC Track Club got <laughs> zero medals. The only medal coming from the United States from a track club, unless you call Bobby Cozy's team a club, I think would be the Brooks Beast, Josh Kerr, gold medal. I don't know where Marco Arup trains these days. Mississippi but, State, with Coach Chris Woods, I don't think they have a track club either. But no, the, the, I don't think the OAC had a bad meet necessarily. Alicia Monson, fifth in the 10K, that's a terrific result. George Beamish, fifth in the steeple, that's a, basically a ceiling right there for right now. And I think Nagus fifth, okay, Nagus and Darcia Romo, fifth and sixth, that's, that's not a disaster. You would like one of them to medal. But I think the bigger thing was the headline was just not reflective of reality. We would look to that headline and we were like, do they? what's their best case scenario? Like one medal in Budapest? I think it was just an unrealistic expectation. OAC yes. as a whole, I think, had a bad meet, but the headline was setting them up to fail if that's the expectation. All right, guys. Mojito and Rojo has to jump off early and announces it. I'm like, this is your job, dude, but none of the weather. Got to go. I got to prepare for a colonoscopy as well. Sure, it's something Alex doesn't have to worry about his age or even John at his age. First one ever, but I got another topic for you. The most impressive non-medalist. Mine's obvious. Who impressed you most who didn't get a medal? We've mentioned Grijalva. I'm still impressed with his fourth place, even though I think he could have walked away with a medal in the right, right conditions, but I, I just love his story. But mine's Niels Voros, 10th place in the 1500. But the dude was in contention at the bell, put himself up there with 200. And also the cool thing you even heard He's a Let's Run.com podcast baby. His parents are like, yeah, we were on vacation a couple years ago. We had Neil's in the back of the car, you know, listening to your podcast. It showed up at the Let's Run meetup. They were the first people there the day of the 1,500-meter final. So I'm a little biased in this category, but I hate to jinx him, but if someone's the next Jakob, it's this kid. 144, 330 now. I don't even know what his 5K time is, but they're amazing. Got to jump, guys. I agree with Weldon. Laros was incredibly impressive. 
And it just reminds me of the thing. That's the problem with these, with these events. You know, not only is you get fifth or fourth, it's the same mindset that happens in your conference meet. You get fifth or fourth and you think, oh, in a couple of years, I'm going to win it. No, you're not. Because the problem is the super talents keep coming in, whether it's college or the pro ranks or whatever. So Laros, you want me to name your, if you're giving me like five medal contenders for next year, Paris, I want him on my list. And I'm not saying that Nagus can't medal. I'm not saying that Garcia Romo can't medal. But these guys weren't close to that at 18. This kid barely shaves. Like, you know, he was incredible. Absolutely incredible. Yeah. He he definitely is up there for my most impressive non-medalist. He probably would be it. I mean, he also, the way he ran in that final, like running to win, he was in metal position essentially with 200 to go and just ran out of steam, but he Maybe ran he really just, impressively. Should have just run in the back and run for a medal instead of running for the goal. But, you know, I, I think that just track in general, it, it's a bell curve and the very best person is so far out there that they can have an off day and get two medals like Hank Bitson. But there's so many people that are like in the mix for medals, but it's so hard for the medals. The, Ritzenheim should be very, very proud of that team that he's built. They're way better than I thought they would be. When when, when it came out a couple of years ago, they were building a, a team around Joe Klecker. I thought Joe Klecker is going to be a guy that's going to run like he did this year, like lucky to make a team, makes a team and gets destroyed. Well, Klecker's been way better than that, and he's beaten Grant Fisher at USA's, won a U.S. title, made a bunch of world's teams, Olympic teams. So the team's doing amazing. Uh, to me, it's not a disappointment, but if you judge things on medals, it's just incredibly, incredibly hard for what Noah Lyle says is a global sport. I mean, you know, you've got Uganda, you've got Guatemala, you've got USA, Ethiopia, Kenya. Incredibly hard. One event we really haven't talked about. We haven't really praised, you know, if we're talking about biggest winners. Can we just say Kenyan-born women? They they won like every event, right? 800, uh, 800, 1500, steeplechase. Wasn't Yavi born in Kenya? 5,000. They didn't win the 10K. Or the marathon, but yeah, they won all those other ones. So they had a good meet, but we haven't talked about the men's steeplechase. We have the world record holder against the Olympic champion. It's kind of played out what we've been talking about. You don't make it fast. You're going to lose to Albacali. Albacali, it wasn't super fast. But this race... I kept thinking Gurma's got a shot, even if it's slow, because he's the Ethiopian record holder than 1,500. He's getting better. He's younger than Mel Bacali. The tide has not turned. But both steeplechase, the women's side and the men's side, proved confirmed one of the Robert Johnson maxims from college coaching. The steeplechase is the really only distance event. I'm talking longer than 1,500. Admittedly, it's the shortest event longer than 1,500, where you can run it fast. Well, 1500, you need good wind. You, you can't have a windy day to run a fast 1500. The steeplechase, the weather doesn't matter. You can run a fast time. It's bizarre to me. Hot, cold, windy, doesn't matter. They can run fast. Like, look at the distance times in, the, in these world championships, John. Like, the times were slow, right? 5Ks, 10Ks. But the, the women's steeple was super fast, even though it was hot. 854. The men's steeple, despite going out in like 255, they run 803 off that. So I think it's because 
one, they're not running all that fast compared to the flat speed. Two, it's not that long of a race, so the heat doesn't make that much of a difference. Maybe you get cooled off in the water. But three, also, like, it's not having a rabbit doesn't hurt you as much as it does in the other events because when you're in the lead, you don't have anyone to worry about. Like, you have no one to draft off, but you don't want to be drafting off someone anyways because you might be running into them and tripping and falling. So just interesting about the steeple in terms of the times. Yeah, I don't really have much to add on that. I'll just maintain the thing I've said all season. One of those guys had a kick. One of them didn't. The guy with the kick won. So uh, I am excited to see if Goma... I mean, Goma's got four straight silvers in that event now. It's like him. Kelly Hodgkinson's got three straight in the 800. I am going to be... It's going to be fun to see if they can finally break through in the Olympics. It is always cool when someone who's been so close can get there. But look, Elbacali is right, right... He is rising in the ranks of the all-time greats in that event three straight global titles 756 pb he's three seconds off oh sorry four seconds now off the world record he's putting together a special career all right robert there are a couple of big picture things i'm going to call them lessons from the world championships things we glean from either being there or talking to people at the meet that sort of thing just going to run them by you number one get rid of the marathons the world championship marathons you stage them in the, I mean, early in the morning. This is a track meet. We have major marathons. We have an Olympic marathon that people care about. But the World Championship Marathon, it's disingenuous to crown that person the world champion because you're not getting the best fields. It's a hot weather race. Times aren't that fast. I don't really mind that. But it's just so, like people, I've never, when's the last time you were ever excited about a World Championship Marathon, Robert? I get pumped for some of these other races. The marathon, I just feel like, Oh, I guess there's a marathon. We turn up and watch that or turn it on. It just seems unnecessary. If you want to have a world championship marathon, Seb Coe mentioned this in one of his press conferences, maybe tie it in with one of the other races. Say like every year you have a world champion or not even every year, every two years, like we do now, you say Chicago is the world championship marathon this year or London's the world championship marathon this year, but it doesn't need to be part of the world championship trap meet. I agree with you. We don't need to have it. I don't like the idea of making a major. That major still wouldn't be the world champion. They would just be giving. Well, I kind of like them to do it just to a non-Abbott World Marathon major, just to to ding them a little bit. Like, because if they're going to have a world, it's not just going to be an Abbott major every year. So then one year, eventually, you're going to have like Valencia as the world championship. But then Abbott's going to say, oh, we're the only major. So I would like that just to make it more competitive. But you're still I, not going to have think, everybody showing John, you're not going to have everybody showing up for the London when it's the major. So right. I'm fine with that. These fields are still pretty good, John. There was a lot of good runners in these marathons. I mean, they are good. I just think the world champion title is a little not reflective of the reality. And actually, the more you think about it, I th the more you say that Robert, maybe we don't even need a world championship marathon as part of one of these majors. Like the majors are pretty good as they are. We get excited about all of them. They don't, some of them don't always have the best fields, but I think the quality has gone up in the last couple of years. We get excited about all of them. That's kind of what we say. What we oh, track and field. They know to, need to go to five, four or five, four majors per year and get more interest. We have that in the marathon. We have six majors plus we've got Valencia, which is essentially another major. You've got a, these other ones, and people get excited about pretty much all those races. That's like six or seven weekends a year where people are pumped about a marathon. So I actually don't think that's broken and. You don't need to add another world championship in there um, on I, top of what we already got. It's a pretty good system. Now, maybe they want to show off their city. Like, I'm sure Budapest wanted to show off that beautiful avenue and 
whatnot, but the money they spend on it too. Think about like closing the streets, paying all the police. Like if you could just throw, I, I know this is the way it works. They wouldn't just give the organizers another million dollars instead of having to close the streets for two days. But I, I agree. I'd rather just see that happen. All right. Since Weldon's off the podcast, John, he wasn't going to let us talk about it, but we have a major marathon coming up in November in the U.S. A couple of names have been added to New York. I had more than one lesson from Worlds. I kind of wanted to hit on these, Robert. But okay, go back. The other one, Worlds needs to be in Europe as much as possible, at least every four years. And I don't mind if we have it here back to back. I've covered five World Championships. The best atmosphere was London 2017 and Budapest 2023. Doha was very flat for most of the meet until they started busting people in. Eugene was decent for the people who showed up, but they couldn't even sell out a 15,000 seat stadium. So and it's just hard to get to anywhere in any major city in Europe. It's going to be pretty easy to get to for most of the serious track and field fans, which the majority, the beating heart of the sport is in Europe. This is where they care about the sport more than any other continent. So, and it's also not that far well, at least from Northern Africa. So, I, you know, the European worlds are terrific and we need to have more of them. Not going to argue with you there. I was a little bit surprised. I saw, I read part of an article where Seb Kozak, like, I can't think of a better atmosphere. And I was like, wouldn't London have been better? I wasn't at London, but you said it was probably a little bit better than this, but pretty similar. London like, was a larger stadium. So it was, yeah. I would say London was as good or better than Budapest. I mean, that was a great Just, championship. To me, it was a lot of fun to be like in a European city on a river, beautiful backdrops, taking buses, trams, scooters to the meet, seeing people from all over, huge turnout for the Let's Run meetup. Like the, the crowd was probably like three times the size it was in Eugene. And I talked to some of the people there. They're like, well, we thought about going to Eugene last year. We're huge track fans, but we, we just, there was no hotel within a hundred miles that was guaranteed and it wasn't super expensive. So it's like a pain in the ass to go to. Whereas here people were going to worlds and going to like Czechoslovakia for a day or two, coming back for worlds. Just, just, yeah, it was amazing. It, it was went a to lot a of time fun. machine to Czechoslovakia. That country hasn't existed for like 30 years, but it is, it is interesting. I was hearing the finalists for the next Worlds, at least the city's bidding. I think it was Delhi, Rome. What were the other ones? There was like two more. I think Nairobi wants to bid. I was just thinking, I mean, Ro Rome would be awesome. And I do think it would be nice to get a World Championships in Africa at some point, in Kenya. I th Probably is the country that's most likely to host it, but it is a little different hosting uh, worlds from a world juniors or a world under 18s, which they've already hosted. So I think, yeah, Co has basically said, look, I would like to get one in Ke in Africa as well, but they need to be sure it can go off without a hitch. Wouldn't South Africa be the most obvious choice? Do they have a stadium for it though? Oh, I don't know. But I don't know. They did host a World Cup, which went pretty well from what I understand. Anyway, um, that was another one. And then, you know, we kind of already talked about this, the men's 1500 rules. Like, this is why championship 1500s, you just, you know, nothing beats it. You can have a heavy favorite, but because unless it's Faith Kipiegon, who is the greatest of all time, 
It's very hard to run away from anyone. And even Hikam El Garouge, the guy a lot of people view as the greatest smiler of all time, he couldn't just run away from everyone in Olympic finals. He got beat by Nguyen Yen. He won in 2004, but he basically he needed a pacemaker to win his world titles. It's just very tough. So oh, no. that was the, my other thing, but we already kind of knew that. Didn't he close the Worlds in like 145 or 147 or something ridiculous? I think he closed the 2004 Olympics in like 146.0, which makes me think like maybe he would have just won these 1500s anyway without a pacer. But the fact is he used them for, I think, at least three of the four. All right, Robert, let's pivot to New York City Marathon. Like you said, the fields came out today on Tuesday. And for a year before the Olympic trials, which means we're not going to see a lot of Americans, very impressed. So got some great international fields among the strongest New York's ever had. You got Molly Huddle running it and Kellen Taylor running it. Kellen Taylor, I found very interesting. She hasn't run a marathon since the fall of 2021. Gave birth all, or earlier this year. It's kind of interesting to me that she would do this, but she also does some crazy things from time to time. So I guess it's not a, you know, massive shock, but I, I was surprised. Um, but yeah, the women we've got, we already knew up top, a terrific matchup. Bridget Kozgai, Perez Chia, Helen O'Beary, Sharon Locati. Added to that now, Latessa Magide, half marathon world record holder. Yellow Surf, Yellow Hall, Yahalo, Y Squared, 2022 London champ. Lotus Solpada, medaled last year at Worlds. Go to Tom Gerber, Selassie, 2022 world champion. Edna Kiplagat. That's a great women's field. I, I think that's – when's the last time New York had a race that strong? I, it's a really good race up top. Yeah, we had to let Weldon go away before we allowed to talk about this because he wanted to be all worlds. But this is amazing. But this reminds me, New York is always better in the Olympic year because they – I don't want to say they waste, but they spend a ton of money on Americans. Americans get paid a lot even though they're not that good. And people can say it's not fair. But that's just the way it works. So – they're not paying a Galen Rupp or someone six figures to run this race. They can get a ton of studly Africans for much less. Like this women's field is insane. I mean, part of it, yeah. Robert, look at it. You got seven Kenyans. You never get seven Kenyans in the New York City Marathon. Usually they max out at a couple, two or three per country. They like to have an international field, tell a lot of stories. But for this one, it looks like Sam Grotewald, who's the head of elite athletes, just was like, all right. Well, bring back Lakati, who's the reigning champ. Get Obiri, get Viola Cheptu, who's run well here before. Kozgai, Jeff Chiachir. I mean, he just went for went for it. And this is, this has got to be one of the best women's fields in any marathon history. Kozgai, Gade, Chip Chirchir, plus Obiri. Like I, I pretty much guarantee the course record is going to go. Like they should also do that. Put a big course record bonus. They always have these tiny bonuses. John, guess what the New York City women's course record is. Oh, it stood since like 2003, Margaret Akayo, I think. I'm trying to think right now. It's come very close to falling like multiple times the last couple of years. And it is, it's either 222 or 221. I'm going to say it's 222.31. Bing, bing. Exactly right, John, to the second. I, I knew I had that in the back of my mind somewhere. Yeah. Because how we saw how is that Mary Katani, Mary Katani should have brought, because I would write it every year. I'm like, Margaret Okayo's course record indoors because Mary Katani would smash the second half, but she'd go out so slow. I think sometimes you see the first mile it's uphill on the bridge 
And then people are like, oh, don't worry about pace anymore. And then they just slam it home the second half. But And then sometimes you get, it's a really warm day and people don't want to go for it. But yes, if the conditions are good and the women actually go out hard, this course record should get destroyed. You have five women under 218, six women at 218.11 or better. They can run like 10 seconds a mile off their PB. I guess you don't have that much, you know, 10 seconds a mile in a marathon is four minutes. So you got hills and it's not great weather, you know, go out hard. 10 seconds a mile can go quickly, add up quickly. Look, Molly Huddle to me is, is not a surprise. I'm surprised she, like, she doesn't like hills. So New York's kind of surprising in that front, but I think she assumes she's not going to make an Olympic team and she's going to get paid here. Same thing with Kellen Taylor. She needs the time. She needs a standard. She needs to get a marathon ranking of some sort. I would love to see her make an Olympic team because she's never made one. But does she, do you think she really thinks she's going to make one at this age? She just won the U.S. She won her first U.S. championship, right? On the roads. Kaylin Taylor. Am I making that up? Anyways, she's been running yes, she well. Did. The seven miler, uh, the big seven. Yeah. So I'm kind of surprised she's doing it. I'm thinking, well, maybe is she like huddled? Does she really not think she can make it? But she no, she's so tough. Maybe she thinks I need the time anyways. I can get a lot of money and I'll see what happens at the trials. You know, she bounces back quickly in the new shoes. Yeah. I mean, I think she's still very motivated to make this Olympic team, um, but maybe it's just something she feels she can do, or maybe she just wants to run a marathon after not having run one for two years. All right, Robert. I guess we can talk about the men, but we got to do it quickly because my it's 11.22 right now. My Airbnb host in Zurich is saying that I've been making a lot of noise. So very quickly, anything stand we, out to you from no, this men's field? I don't need to talk about the men there. I want to hear about Zurich. What, what, can, what can we look out for? Sold out, 25,000 fans. Yeah. Noah Lyles running the 200. That's the last event. We've got Josh Carr, Yardin Goose, Cole Hawker in the 15. Noinga Brixen, Shikari's in the 100, Sharika Jackson in the 200. Those are the main things I'm looking forward to. Warholm's running the 400 hurdles, but no Benjamin. But it should be a great meet. It always is. And the five, oh, Grant Fisher, he's entered in the 5K, which should be very exciting to see what, he, what he's capable of. I would say we need to do a live show afterwards, but then you're going to be doing your interviews. Yeah, you might be able to do a live show. I don't think I'm going to be able to get in on that. So go to Let's Run each and every day. Figure out if we're going live or not. It's exciting. It was a great world. John, I don't want to get you I don't want to get your Airbnb rating dinged. I'll let you go. All right. Good night, everyone. Should I go on alone, folks, and just I know everybody wants to hear me. Noah Lyles wants to hear me, but no, I'm not gonna do it. I'm still recovering from my jet lag. Thanks for joining us. We'll have a possibly a live show from Zurich. If not, we'll have a regular Friday 15 for the supporters club members. Let's run.com slash subscribe.